I entitled today's message, Extreme Allegiance. And I want to begin with a concept and then to give you the fill in the blank that's on the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. So I want to begin with a concept of balance. And it's the idea of this. Following a divine king, as we do in Jesus Christ, it's a balancing act. There are things that he expects of us that are different in different scenarios, in different situations. It's a very fluid, dynamic relationship. Uh, we love things in little neat categories and say, well, I either want to be like this or I want to be like this. However, almost always what I see in scripture is I need you to be like this in this circumstance and I need you to be like this in this circumstance. Now, it's not ever changing your integrity Integrity is to be sound throughout. You must always be consistent with following God. However, there are some things that we need to balance. Let me give you three examples this morning. The first one, we need to balance the idea that God is big. And we fear Him because He's mighty and great and that He can protect Himself. Right? The idea that we don't have to run around at all times and, and constantly try to help everybody else uh, try to protect God. God can protect himself. We have to balance that with the idea of extreme zeal for his name. Where there's times when we need to step in and say, whoa, 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 whoa. What are we talking about? No, no, no. Our God is mighty. Stop saying that he's not. There's times when we need to step forward in strength. And stand for the name of God. There's more things to balance. We need to balance zeal with wisdom. Zeal is good. As a matter of fact, I, I love the idea of this passionate excitement and, and going forward and, and kind of, in some ways, going a little bit overboard at times. I love the idea of zeal. Um, obviously, uh, earlier in my life, um, in my late teens, towards my 20s, I was involved in a band. The band's name was Jesus Freaks. So I'm pretty much about zeal, right? I, I love that idea, okay? And the idea is that all out for Jesus. Let's go. Well, we balance that with wisdom. There's times when we need to understand that we need to pull back for a second in order for a better outcome. In order to do it the way that God wants. There's times when our zeal gets the best of us and we carry it too far into disobedience. We need to balance that passion with the wisdom. And indeed, we need to balance being a Jesus freak with being an effective minister. I, I appreciate when we get all fired up and we're little Bible thumpers, right? And all we want to do is talk about Jesus all the time. I think that's awesome. However, if you're no longer being effective in your communication and all you're doing is irritating people, you got to watch out. Because they're not where you're at. They don't understand what you're talking about all the time. Uh, for example, let's say you have a brand new boyfriend or girlfriend and you're unmarried. All right. That's, uh, let's, let's qualify that. <laughs> A brand new boyfriend or girlfriend, and all you want to do is talk about them all the time. And everyone's like, you know, that's good for you. I really appreciate that in you, and I'm happy that you're happy. If you mention them again, I'm going to kill myself. 
You know what I'm saying? Okay, there's a certain line to where you're like, well, just shut up. Stop talking like that. All right, I get it. They're awesome and wonderful. Okay, there's a certain place to where we can be all about Jesus, but at some place we need to realize that to effectively communicate and minister, we need to fit the appropriate situation. So indeed, the fill in the blank in front of you is this. The Christian life is a balance. The Christian life is a balance of loving God and loving people ferociously. Those two must balance each other out. It cannot all be the idea of ignoring either one of them. Because indeed, Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, and he gave two. Remember, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And likewise, to love your neighbor as yourself. So he gave two to say, balance this. Of course, love should drive everything. Passion should drive everything. However, pay attention to both sides. It's not an either or, it's an and. One of the things that I would hope that we do not do is allow the subculture of the church or the subculture of Christianity to dumb us down, inoculate us, make us mundane and boring. That cannot happen. God mentioned a couple times different things that really catch his attention, and he mentioned one man particularly was the apple of his, of his eye. Do you remember who that was? But King David. King David is passion through and through. King David was a guy who would step up and kill Goliath as a young man. King David was the one that would dance before God in a completely embarrassing scenario. Everyone's looking at him like he's an idiot and he doesn't care. It's all God all the time. He's the one that would completely mess up and fall apart. And then once again he would come before God and pour his heart out. He was the one that would be so extreme in taking care of God's name. But at the same time, he would pull back in wisdom and not take care of his own name, but let God take care of that reputation. This man who was so filled with passion, not the boring average Christian of today, was the apple of God's eye, the one that he selected out and made him the greatest king of Israel after Jesus. May our passion remain. May our passion be excited and be ready to go while at the same time balancing all things with appropriate love. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22 verse 1. It's page 167 and the Bible's handed to you. 167. Joshua 22 verse 1. Let me recap where we're at in the story. As Israel has come into the promised land, they did a military campaign. They took over the major areas. They settled down. They allotted all the land. And basically, the land is separated by a river. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Two and a half are on the right side of the river or the east side. Nine and a half are on the west. The story today involves conflict between those two crews, those two groups. The west side versus the east side. All right? Now that the campaign is done, they're letting the two and a half go home, and it looks like it's peacetime. And then everything hits the fan. Joshua chapter 22, verse 1, 
We'll start studying. It says, then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. That's the two and a half eastern group. And he said to them, you have done well. You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. And you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. What is he saying? Back in Numbers chapter 32, Moses told the group, they said, all right, we settled this land on the eastern side as a, as a team. But now your brothers, nine and a half of you, have to go on the other side and they have to fight their battles. I want you to go with your brothers. Leave some of you here to protect the home. The rest of you, I want you to bail out and I want you to go on this military campaign with us. So he said, I really appreciate you obeying that command. And you know what? As your leader, I want to tell you thank you for obeying what I have commanded. You have obeyed me in everything I command. Verse 3, for a long time now. To this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but you have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. How long? Anybody remember how long they've been gone? Seven years. I want you to picture this. Let's make it personal. You come into a new territory, a new land. You have your family. It's all exciting. You have a new home. You're setting up your tents. You have new land. You've all been given this new stuff. And we all know that once you get new stuff, you want to play with it. You want to hang out with it. You want to be in there and just go, wow, this is mine. And look what we could do. And honey, look at that. Over there, isn't that a beautiful sunset right over the edge of our property? They had to get up, bail out, and leave for seven-year tour. And it was rough. It was not an easy tour. There was risk of death. This is going old school, ancient world, where you leave with your shield and your sword, and you don't know if you're coming back. They didn't get a chance to enjoy any of their new things, and they left their families for seven years to go fight with their brothers to make sure their brothers have rest. Right here, I think we should do a gut check. And realize how much are we supporting our friends and our family around us? How much are we supporting them that they may have rest? If you have rest, that's great for you. What about the rest of us? Do we have rest? Is there something that you can do to help us in our rest? Notice that he said, you have carried out in obeying me and Moses, you carried out what God had for you to do. Why is that important? Because all of our behavior emanates out from making sure we have our first priority first. You always obey God in everything and it begins to change all your other relationships. It changes your marriage. It changes how you parent. It should. If it's not, something's wrong. It should change every level. It should change how you work. It should change your friendships. Why? Because if you're following God, he has put in certain things in place for your safety and for you to thrive. As you follow through on those, it alters you inside and you begin to think differently and do different things. Have you changed? As you have committed your life and begin to clear up the core, the root system of your tree, has your fruits become more appropriate, healthier. How are your relationships going? Moves on, it says this, verse 4, Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest 
as he promised. And indeed, what sort of rest should we be expecting? The commentary defined their rest as freedom to live in one's own land. Did God give you that? Do you have freedom to live in your own land? Has Jesus Christ conquered death and hell? Has he cleansed you of your sins? If indeed, then he has cleared out all your territory that you might live in your own land. Have you used that freedom now to merely put shackles on within your own hometown? Maybe not the external pressure, but the internal pressure. That Jesus has already cleared out all this territory for you to live free, but are you living free in that freedom? That's the challenge. But God has given you rest. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised, return to your tents. NIV translates it homes. Better translated tents. It's temporary. They never got a chance to set up shop. Return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful. Oh, here comes the leadership challenge. Be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. What does that mean? It means follow God's guidance in everything. And now Joshua is about to instruct them in how to live. And we would assume that we would find this kind of material in the New Testament. But it gets very practical, very deep, very um, Jesus-sounding advice. He says this. Here's what it means to keep the commandment and the law that you received. Love the Lord your God. Be connected to God. Be loyal to God. Love Yahweh your God. To walk in His ways, it means seek what He wants you to do. How in the world are you going to walk in His ways if you don't know what His ways are, right? So we come to church and we say, well, let's dive in and find out what more can I know about His ways. You reading the Word? Are you in the Bible at all? How do you know what He wants? How do you know the nuance? You go, well, I, I got the general thing down, the whole Ten Commandments thing, and I kind of get a gist of it. All right, let's use a real quick scenario. Ladies, has there ever been a time when you asked your husband to do a task, and by the time he got done, he may as well have not done it at all? It's almost worse off than when you started. All right, because he wasn't paying attention to the nuance of what you asked him to do. He's like, yeah, 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 I got it. Clearly, he didn't get it. And now everything's worse. I remember there was a time when I did the laundry. I've been asked not to do the laundry anymore. If I'd have been smart, I would have done that on purpose. I did not. I was actually trying to help. So I've actually been asked to not do the laundry. So the idea is unless you're listening to the nuance of what is really desired, are you really doing any help? Are you doing any benefit? If God says, I want you to love this way, did you go, love, 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 yeah, 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 I got that one, and you took off? Slow down. What did he ask you to do? How did he ask you to do it? With what heart? To what degree? That's why we study the word, to get the nuance. So, we love the Lord our God. We walk in all his ways. And he says, and to obey his commands. It means live it. Don't just think about it. 
Remember I told you most of our Christianity is just thinking new things. That's not Christianity. He said, obey his commands, do it. Don't just think it. And hold fast to him. The word is a little bit more extreme in Hebrew that it says cleave into him. Hold fast to him. Fuse into him. Is that your walk? Where you have fused into God and you have taken upon his personality into yours and you into his. It means stick in there, don't give up. It says, and we are here to serve him. What does it mean to serve God but to do everything he asks of you? Every morning, the mantra of a believer is, what are we doing, boss? Lord, what do you want? Master, what is it that you wish? I will do as you have requested. He said, serve him with all your heart. Get emotionally behind it. Get involved in it. And all your soul, meaning all that you have. So what do we do with this peace? These gentlemen have now gone out and self-sacrificed in extreme servanthood for seven years. They're now returning home, and as a great leader, he issues them a challenge. He said, real quick, heads up. You're immediately going to go into ease mode. You're going to go back in. You're going to be all focused on building your own little kingdoms and your houses and your stuff. I need you to remember God. One of the most common commands in Scripture is remember. Because we forget so easily. Remember, God is primary. Let's keep him primary. Let's keep him focused and everything else will flesh out. It starts with God. Flows out. We pick it up at verse 6. Then Joshua blessed them and he sent them away. Now how can Joshua bless them? Well, because he's the dad of the group. He's a leader. You know, that's the same reason because I'm a shepherd of this church why I do the baby dedications the way I do. Because I pray a blessing over the child to fulfill that office. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their homes. To the half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given the land in Bashan. To the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan with her brothers. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, meaning seven years of the spoils of war, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and great quantity of clothing, and divide it with your brothers, the plunder from your enemies. Pause. What's that? I've been out here fighting for seven years, and I'm going to go home, and I'm going to share with Bob, who hang out at home. Okay, what did he risk? Why in the world am I sharing with that guy? Ah, the rules. You remember the rules? Moses set down the rules. The rules are this. The guys who stay at home and protect the home are just as valuable as the guys who go out and fight the battle. You share the spoils of war. Why is that important? Because I want you to think about what your calling is right now. Your calling in the kingdom of God. It is just as significant as anything outward that everyone else gets credit for. Right? So let's talk about it in the church. I have a very visible public ministry. I'm teaching. It's, it's on the radio. So what, it's more significant than another responsibility that's handled here at the church? Absolutely not. The job of God is to do what he asks you to do. If God asks you to go in the nursery and hold a little baby so that baby feels safe, 
that baby feels protected, that baby feels comforted, then your task is just as valuable to the kingdom of God than whether or not you teach from up here. They are identical because success is only defined by obedience to what God asked you to do. So no matter what you do for the kingdom, whether you stay at home or you go out and do the flashy thing like fight the battles, it's all equal and everybody shares. He said this. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh, that's their headquarters, in Canaan, to return to Gilead, the eastern side, on the other side of the river, to their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Gelioth, or Geliloth, I should say, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. What's an imposing altar? It's a really big altar. Why do they need a really big altar? Well, so you can see it from a distance. So they built some enormous, huge altar. That's all we know. And when the Israelites, meaning the other guys, the other nine and a half tribes... So when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Geliloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Uh-oh. What happened? Ah, we're now brother killing brother. You see? All of a sudden, everything's cool. Hey, bless you. Go home. Everything's great. Really appreciate the fact that you just sacrificed seven years of your life to help us, what, settle down, rest, make our new homes. That's terrific. We send you home. You build one thing. We show up and we kill you all. What happened there? Is that completely saying, hey, we didn't appreciate what you did? Why in the world are they assembling for war to go kill the very tribes that helped them out for seven years? What could possibly be a big enough deal to rouse all of them to go to war with their own tribe? What would cause that? This better be a big deal, right? Don't you think? Because this is pretty extreme. You're going to go strap on a sword and go kill all the guys you've been battling alongside for seven years. Is everybody familiar with this idea of a foxhole mentality? Kind of like this whole old school war mentality. When you're fighting battle with another man, there's this bond. You have been protecting my life. I've been protecting your life. We've been in crazy scenarios together. Nobody understands what we've gone through except for us. Have you ever noticed that a lot of vets like to hang out together because they're the only ones that understand? Everyone at home doesn't get it. They've been going on with their lives completely normal. Meanwhile, your whole mindset has been completely altered. You're trying to re-engage with society and nobody understands you. So you want to be with your brothers. You want to talk about it and go, you remember what we went through, right? Where are you at? Would you turn on that buddy and begin to assault him to kill him? That's how extreme this is. What could they have possibly done that would cause that kind of reaction? They broke the worship rules. To us, we don't care. To them, it's everything. Keep your finger there and Joshua, turn back with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1, page 134. 
So it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So you're going to bounce one book back. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1, page 134. As you're turning there, does the name of God stir up anything in you? Do you ferociously protect the worship of God appropriately? I don't think I do enough. I don't think I'd be in this group. I'm Mr. Understanding, easygoing guy. Oh, I totally get it. I know that's not really what you meant. Don't worry about it. And God would be disappointed with me. Here are the rules. The rules were expressly stated. I think God was clear. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. In other words, you're going to go to a promised land. Here's the rules. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountain and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Verse 4, if you underline in your Bibles, underline verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Goes on, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts that you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families will eat and rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan. This is way before it ever happened, by the way. You will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then, to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, all your stuff. Verse 13. Underline verse 13. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes and there observe everything I command you. Was God clear? What did he say? Do not do it the way you want to do it. Do it the way I want you to do it and do it there. You know, it's intriguing that we seem to err in the areas of worship in two primary ways. Method or manner. Sometimes, and I shouldn't say method or manner, I should say method or motive. Let's do that one. Method or motive. Sometimes we do all the right things on the outside. We go to church and we take communion and we sing worship songs, but our motivations are wrong. Doesn't count. Then... There are times when our motives are excellent and our method is completely skewed. We had a great heart. We wanted to do something neat for the Lord, but it was completely contrary to what he wanted. Doesn't count. We must line up our motives and our method when it comes to worshiping God. What was the rule of the time? 
You can only worship where God says you can worship. That currently is in the tabernacle in our story. And the tabernacle is in what city? Shiloh, the new headquarters. It's the only place you're supposed to worship. What did these guys just do? Build a big, enormous altar somewhere else. That's the whole reason everyone's willing to kill someone. Let's go back to the story in Joshua. Verse 15. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to the east, to Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With, them, with him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. All right, so Phinehas, the son of the high priest, and ten representatives head out in a delegation to go talk to him about it before they go and kill them all. When they went to Gilead to Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Pause. Anybody know the sin of Peor? Nope, you sure don't. Let's pause here and bounce back. Let's go read it. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. Bounce back. Two books. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, page 115. I'm going to read this story because if I paraphrase it, I will offend someone. There are a lot of little ones in our midst. And so I will allow God to insult you. Numbers 25, 1. Numbers 25, 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, everybody remember our city? Fantastic. <laughs> Praise the Lord. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, the other god. The Lord's anger burned against them, and the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them. And expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay, let's set up the scenario real fast. He is carrying out the very act that is causing all the problem. He sets up a tent right in front of a bunch of leaders who are crying over the situation in an absolute defiant act of rebellion. He goes into the tent with a woman. This is what happens. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite into the tent, and he drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered what? 24,000 people. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him, I'm making my covenant of peace with him. 
He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. This is the Phineas that goes to handle the next worship problem. Okay, this is hardcore holiness guy, right? He just literally walked in and goes, I'll take care of it. Big spear walks out, slam, slams it through both of them. They die. God stops. Now they're doing it again. They're violating something God asked them to do. So Phineas walks up and goes, are you stupid? Was that not enough of a lesson for you? 24,000 of us died because you're not paying attention and doing your own thing and worshiping God in an improper fashion. Now, let's revisit this. What'd you build? Why'd you build it? Build it. And what's going on now? So we go back to Joshua. It says... Up to this very day, Phineas continues, verse 17, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he's going to be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, meaning if you can't handle it there in the east, come over to the Lord's land on our side, where the Lord's tabernacle stands in Shiloh. And we will share the land with you. By the way, that's a big deal because remember, all the land's already been allotted. All the nine and a half tribes have their spots. If they move two and a half tribes in, everybody has to move over. That's a big deal. They're this passionate about worshiping God appropriately. They're willing to not only go to war over it, they're willing to move for it. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. In other words, you guys are messing with our lives too. Don't you dare do this. You trying to bring God down on all of us? The only reason I would go to war against you is because God will come after me. So we're all in this together. This is a community thing. No, you cannot do whatever you want to do because you're impacting me. No, you cannot go ahead and make your own altar and then suddenly God is angry with all of Israel and we go through another plague. I'm not going to do that. So change it and change it now. So how do they respond? Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. I heard you the first time. That's the trifled name of God. It's El Elohim Yahweh. That is a really extreme way to call upon the name of God. And then when Hebrew repeats something, that's to intensify it. So they're freaking out is the whole point. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, meaning he knows our motives. Clearly you don't. So let Israel know if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. In other words, kill us right now. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to an account. No, we did it for fear that someday... 
Your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made a Jordan, a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. What did they just say? You guys, we just made one and we weren't going to use it. Now, I don't know if they were accurate or not. There's guys with swords talking to them. However, if they're accurate, we didn't do it for that. We never intended to use it for sacrifice. What we did was build a huge mock-up version of the one in Shiloh as a constant reminder that we have a ticket to go there. Because let's say what happens. We go on, our kids grow, and they don't remember our whole talk. And they go, look, there's a big Jordan River going between our land. Maybe we're not even connected. And indeed, the Jordan River in certain areas is imposing. It creates a gorge and creates the Jordan Valley. The mountains rise up 2,000 feet and it creates a 5 to 10 mile gap. They would just merely look and go, we're not the same nation. You know what? We have this big dividing line. Why don't we just split? We cannot have that. Our children must have access to God. So what we're going to do is build a huge mock-up on our side. We're not going to use it. But I need to make sure that our children always have access to the place of God so that you can't block us out. Now, good idea or bad idea? Eh, kind of toss-up. I love the idea that they're trying to provide for their descendants and their legacy. Are you doing anything to make sure that your children have reminders of God in their life when you're gone? What are you doing there? Are you investing in that now? That your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, their children, know that somewhere in their lineage was a believer. I appreciate their heart. I appreciate their motivation. But their method was askew. How do we know that? This is a dangerous precedent. You don't just build altars somewhere else. Why? Because someone's going to use it at some point. And then they're going to run into trouble. All right? So still, good motives, bad method. Let's go back. Verse 26. That is why we said, let's get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings, then in the future your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Hmm. they got to balance zeal with wisdom. Not doing that so hot. I'm going to throw out a question for you, and I'm just going to let you chew on it, because I don't have the answer. Because it's very individual to you. Are you worshiping God rightly? Are you worshiping with a right heart and in a manner that is honoring to God? 
Do you toss them a bone every once in a while? I show up to church, I sing the songs. Are you doing it the way he wants you to do it? I don't know. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. You say, well, Lance, how would I know that? You're going to have to find that out on your own. You're going to have to ask him and read what he wrote. I think that one of our struggles in life should be, God, is there something in my life that you want me to alter that I can honor you more? I'm always wondering about how I worship God. I'm always questioning myself if I'm doing it the way that he likes. I think of all the times that I've gone through a whole worship set and not once did my heart connect in with anything my mouth was saying. I wonder how many times I was so distracted that I went through the motions. I've been battling with that all this weekend. My mind's somewhere else. And I had to keep fighting. I sat in the back and I was doing communion. I almost didn't do communion because I couldn't even focus. It was offered to me and I grabbed it and I sat in the back and I just kept saying, God, it's got to be your grace on this one. And I just kept trying to focus. Are we honoring God in a way that is pleasing to him? Let's close the story out. Verse 30. When Phineas the priest, you guys all know him as Brother Ferb? Oh, all right. That's a cartoon. If you don't watch cartoons, you don't get it. That's not funny. When Phineas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now, you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. But we wouldn't be in this stupid position if you wouldn't have built it in the first place. I added that. That's on the Bible. Here we go. Verse 32. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and the Gadites and Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praise God. And they talked no more of going to war against them to devastate their country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. Are you vicious about raising up the name of the Lord? Where is God being dishonored in your world? Where is there something to where someone is saying that God is something that he is not? Where is there a place where people are spitting on the very idea and yet you have authority over that area? Now clearly you can say something, but if you don't have any authority, it's not really going to matter. But still you need to say something. To make it known that our God is mighty and holy and needs to be lifted up and held to a high respect and regard. Make sure you're accurate. Get into the dialogue, the discussion. Why are we doing this? Is God being honored in this way? Because God deserves respect. And in our lives, it should be here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that we would be able to enjoy you. That we would be able to learn about you, know what you desire, know what you want, know how to do it in what certain ways. That there are lines and guidelines that we need to be following when it comes to worshiping you. 
That, Lord, we don't just get to do whatever we want and give you leftovers. But, Lord, that we want to unite our hearts and we want to be vicious for your name. Oh, God, may we be radical in heart. In Jesus' name we pray.